0: Sure.
1: Hey everybody, I'm excited today I get to bring forth another guest who I actually got to meet in person and hang out with in a hallway talking on the side because it's about all the time you have in a conference for podcasters where you're drinking from the fire hose and and wandering the halls lost and trying to figure out where the next session is. This is Andy Wong and he runs the Inspired Money podcast. And he, of course, has a day job, which is Runnymede Capital Management. So he is actually in control of all of our futures. How are you doing today, Andy? Andy,
2: Wow, that sounded really, really serious. Uh, I'm doing
1: great. I'm doing
2: great. We didn't get to hang out as much as I would have liked at Podcast Movement, but it was awesome to meet you and shake hands and uh, put a face to the name. And then it was afterwards that I got to see and listen to your podcast. I see you everywhere. Actually, whenever I log into LinkedIn or Facebook, <laughs> I always see—I see your name and I see your podcast. So,
1: well, good. good Hopefully, marketing. it's not haunting. Good marketing. <laughs> yeah, I'm a marketing force of one. Stumbling. <laughs> well, you're doing a good job. Well, thank you, thank you. Now, that brings me to a question. You're well. You've been at it probably what a year, year and a half now.
2: I've been at it for just over a year. Um, year in one month. So publish okay. every Tuesday without fail started on Mondays until I figured out that having the extra day is really helpful Sunday night.
1: That makes sense. I think if you're going to do one day a week, Tuesday is probably the best time because everything gets published on Tuesdays. Um I don't know if you notice books always publish or they come out on Tuesdays, new videos come out on Tuesdays and also by publishing on that day, you're not going to run head to head with the holiday and then lose a huge listenership because, Oh wait, that was labor day and nobody listened on that day.
2: Yeah. I I figured early in the week is good, especially if, um, commuters are listening. Like that's how I, I came to be a podcast listener. I would listen a lot driving to and from work. So Monday or Tuesday would be good. Wednesday could work, but that's hump day. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so i don't know when it, it it's always like such a big question for anyone who's creating content whether it's a podcast or a blog no one knows what is the optimal time for me to uh, publish
1: true i would say you could say when it's not and saturday and sunday is probably not for yeah. a financial podcast
2: yeah i agree the weekend's probably not the best time
1: Now, what I like about your podcast, though, and I do want to go into a little bit, is that on the surface, you hear inspired money and financial podcasts, and you start to run and say, oh, God, I'm going to feel guilty for not checking my 401k. But that really isn't the focus of your show. That is true. And I don't know if that's a good thing or
2: a bad thing, because um, just to give you a little background, uh, I think like many, many... Podcast listeners. Serial was the first one for me. Uh two different cousins of mine when the show started coming out. They're like, Have you have you listened to Serial? And I said, No, what is that? And they explained to me, I hadn't listened to a podcast yet. And then quickly got sucked in. And I think listened, like binge-watched or binge-listened to like five episodes until I was caught up. And then I started expanding into other genres, and many of them were business podcasts, since Mm. I'm part of a family business. And in doing that, being a small business owner, you do you you have a lot of responsibilities, right? You do a little bit of everything. You're trying to do marketing. You're trying to do sales. You're trying to do business strategy. And then on Friday, I have to take the garbage out. So it's (laughs) like, it's soup to nuts, right? We do everything. We kind of have our hand in a little bit of everything. So podcasts were just a great way to learn and feed my brain and find motivation and inspiration when I was driving the car or doing my dishes. And at some point, I said to myself, it would be cool to have our own podcast and my company. It's my brother and me. My father started the company about (laughs) 25 years ago. And my brother and I have been blogging for the company for five years now. But, oh, okay. but to add audio content, I thought that would be really cool. But the last thing I want to do is have this really dry, boring audio financial advisor podcast that's talking about 401ks every week. And I think there is some, you know, of course, there, there is something to providing really practical information. Sure. But oftentimes, advisors, we get excited about things, and the average listener is going to fall asleep. So <laughs> with Inspired Money, I purposely try to go really broad and be more focused on the inspirational side and have it money-related so that it's still connected to my business. And when I want to, I from time to time, I can talk about 401ks. But Week after week, it's more about exploring a lot of diverse guests, their experiences with money, what money meant to them growing up as a kid, uh, as they found success in whatever, that they, in whatever they do. Like, how does money fit into that picture? Because usually people's success, they're talking about their purpose, their passion. And if they're lucky, money is the byproduct. It's not the soul focus at least for those who are really happy and content
1: so you serve a little bit of sugar for the uh, message maybe later
2: yeah well what i ended up doing is that as my mid-roll i have a runny mead money tip of the week and yeah, i figured that i can talk about something practical just like a two or three minute thing um that kind of brings in the fact that my company is sponsoring the podcast but otherwise it's it's really just listening to interesting stories and ex- exploring uh, interesting guests i mean i've talked to all kinds of people i, I always say that inspired money means uh you know you you're either building something or you're giving money away and uh, you know trying to do something with impact and making the world a better place so that allows me to really talk to anyone so i've talked to entrepreneurs who are building a company i've talked to executive directors and founders of nonprofit organizations who are fundraising and giving money away. Um, I've talked to an actor. I've talked to musicians. I've talked to screenwriters. So just really having fun talking
1: to all kinds of people. What I like about that too, is it sounds to me and from what I've heard, you're viewing money, not as an evil means to an end, which there's a, you know, kind of a stain with money and people who like money, people may think poorly of them or, or I don't know, view them in a bad way. It sounds like you're seeing money as just a resource or a tool.
2: That's correct. That's been a recurring theme in the conversations that I've had, that money is a tool. And one of the premises going into creating the show is that, yes, it is a very common phrase that money is the root of all evil. And also people have seen uh, what money can do to somebody uh, in a negative way. And I figured that by focusing money conversations, but putting it in a positive light, that hopefully that will inspire and motivate people to actually look at their personal finances, because that's one of the things that many of us do not do. You know, it's it's so easy because we get busy in our day-to-day lives. Uh, there are so many things that need to be taken care of today that too often we don't open up our 401k statement and we're not looking or paying attention to the long game that is our retirement planning. So that, that's the other part of Inspired Money. It's like, if I can... If I can create a show that every week I'm talking to an interesting person, covering interesting stories, hopefully we can inspire the listener to say, hey, money's good. Let me take a look at my own finances and make sure that I'm paying attention to them.
1: That makes sense. And really anything can be good or bad in excess. I mean, food is good. We need it to live. We can also be gluttons.
2: That's for sure. Yeah,
1: it's very similar. Balance is good. (laughs) <laughs> it's a good thing it's very very difficult to do anymore it's
2: easier said than done but yes yes absolutely
1: now from what i understand um your father kind of raised you guys with uh, money as just a table conversation in the house like it was you know it's what he did and you sort of just grew up my dad is really an
2: incredible person in that he came to the United States when he was about 13 years old. He came with his brother and my grandparents. They came to the United States because they were running away from the communists uh, who had come into power in China. My grandfather was working at Chiang Kai-shek University as um, wow. sort of like the number two administrator uh, at the university in a very well-regarded university, but... You're on the wrong side with Chiang Kai-shek uh, yeah. with his name on there because that was the other party. So many of the Sh- Chiang Kai-shek and his followers fled to Taiwan. And my grandfather knew that he couldn't hang out. He, he should not stay around in China just because of his association with the with the school. So yeah. he came to the U.S. where we had a family here already. They had some close family friends And came to New Jersey. So my father didn't speak English when he first arrived. He learned English by reading comic books. And uh, did really well in school. Uh, Took a little while to catch up in the English part. But yeah, he ended up going to Yale undergrad. He got his MBA from Columbia. He worked at the Bank of New York, which is the oldest, one of the oldest banks in America. Um, bank of new york was founded by alexander hamilton and my dad ran their research department for 10 years and ran their money management subsidiary for 10 years um, before founding runnymede capital but you are absolutely correct our conversations because my dad loves research and in his time as director of research he was 28 years old when promoted to that position. So he would visit Mm. Fortune 500 companies and he would arrive and they'd say, who is this kid? Why did the bank send this (laughs) kid? He also looked really young too. But at 28, he was like, he was one of the, I think he was the youngest senior vice president of the Bank of New York and managing their research department. So he loved visiting companies, trying to understand what is driving their growth, um, talking to the management and understanding where did the management come from? Did they have experiences at other companies or were were they promoted from within the company? And really trying to understand, um, he was always fascinated by companies that could grow across different generations and across different management teams. Because usually you have one management team that really knows what they're doing and they can deliver the growth, but usually if you have a regime change it's hard to keep that going so he was always fascinated by companies that could do that for multi generations so at home, we would always have conversations or at least he would try with his with me and my brother talking about the importance of return on equity, um, you know our margins growing or or not, and what that means he he would try to explain to us what economic cycles are and how that impacts people's purchasing of major appliances like washers and dryers. Sometimes we would understand and other times not so much.
1: Right. But it would be familiar to your ear because you've been hearing it. And then later on, you might you might actually see it and then suddenly understand that lesson that you were taught 15 years before and have things suddenly click like, oh, that's what he was talking about.
2: Yeah. In that regard, I mean, I think that many Americans, right, they say like two-thirds of Americans are living paycheck to pay, paycheck to paycheck and not having savings in the bank and not having money conversations. That was not the case at our home. Uh, my dad, because he was visiting companies and writing these research reports, there were about 200 institutions that subscribed to the bank's research at that time. So for him to talk to us about what's driving a company's growth and what he would do a lot of studies, uh, with his analysts on market cycles on companies and try to explain to me and my brother, you know, what are the important things and variables to look for and what matters? Uh, he really loves research. And then my mom was actually a, a stockbroker at Merrill Lynch for a while too. Uh, she oh, went wow. back to work when I was in third grade. So, the stock market like stocks bonds portfolios that was like dinner conversations it was it, <laughs> it wasn't uh, it wasn't like abnormal to talk about those things at the dinner well, table
1: it sounds like um he viewed it if i'm not wrong both on the macro and the micro scales
2: yeah he did both he did both um it's because he started his career in the like late 60s, really early 70s. And in the early 70s, bear markets were coming like every two years. And the mutual fund industry almost went, it almost disappeared because people didn't want to invest in stocks because bear markets came so often. Right, And because that was the environment that he started his career in, he felt that it was important to to analyze the macro, to really try to get a feel of, where are you in the economic cycle, and how does that affect the stock market? because every bear market, many of the brokerage firms would fire all of the research people, and uh that that's that's part of their cost cuts and th-
1: they was ironic
2: yeah yeah they <laughs> would they would fire the like sales people last it was like the research department was viewed as overhead, so he felt like it was <laughs> um it was for like survival. It was for job security that he better have an idea is a bear market coming or not. So that, that, that really drove his research and uh, desire to do the macro. Uh, And then inevitably, I mean, the, the, uh, the micro was all part of his job too, because they were writing research reports on the companies.
1: It's kind of funny, the short sightedness, but so typical. It's like, okay, we're losing money and we're hurting right now, so let's fire all the people who might find a way out of it.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny how that works.
1: <laughs> You've got salespeople who are scraping the pavement, hitting the same people who don't have the money to afford you, and you have somebody else who can say, well, this happened 10 years ago, and this is how we turned it around. <laughs> well, the research
2: people always feel like, um, yeah, they have the inter- they have the intellectual knowledge and there is value there in the research that they do but the irony is that many of the portfolio managers who are pulling the trigger on the buys and sells on behalf of like these huge institutional accounts Mm -hmm. they don't always listen to what the analysts are saying i mean
1: Is there a concern and I'm going to go way off track here, but I have my own little pet theories that come out of no no, or lack of knowledge, but I kind of feel like publicly traded companies are just a hair shy of a Ponzi scheme in of themselves because we have an investment mentality here that you have to grow, 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 grow at all costs and nothing matters. No investing in the company. I don't care. I want more money my next quarter. And that attitude leads itself to a company literally blowing up and falling apart.
2: Uh, we have seen that. I wouldn't say that it's. I wouldn't go as far as saying that it's such a broad a broad problem that uh, public traded companies are all a Ponzi scheme. Uh, but certainly, in my career, I've seen companies that they were under the pressure on a quarterly basis to grow faster than they really should have been right like lucent is an example lucent technologies mm-hmm. uh because that's in my backyard here in new jersey and back in the i guess back in year 2000 the telecom industry was probably growing about 15% every year but they were under tremendous pressure to be growing 35% plus. So what they ended up doing was acquiring all these little networking companies and then pasting them together. And it, it was like an accounting game so that they could report that they're growing earnings 35%, which was just not sustainable because their industry was really growing 15 to 20%. And that caught up with them eventually. But there was a period of time where if you bad mouth Lucent, you know, it it's like, what are you, un-American or something? Like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and WorldCom was this, not super uh, uh, rough.
2: But yeah, to that, to that, I think you are, you're correct. I mean, the, even today, there's talk about should companies be reporting on a quarterly basis? Um, you know, it's a little bit controversial. There are those that say they really shouldn't. They should be reporting semi- like twice a year or once a year. But I think that for transparency and for reporting, it is good um, for shareholders to be able to see that information on a quarterly basis.
1: The thing is, I I think about it, and this comes up in my mind now because Sears just declared bankruptcy, which gives us an idea of when we're recording. Um, How many companies, if we look back 100 years, how many corporations exist from 100 years ago versus, let's say, um, an institution which is built – with the future in mind, like a university.
2: Yeah. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but things are happening. Things are happening much quicker now, because if you look at the Dow 30, like I think there's only one company that's like an original composite member. And all the analysis says that the changes are happening more quickly. Now, um, companies do not stay in these composite averages like the Dow Jones industrial average and even the S and P 500. Um, it's harder to stay in there. Like things are happening so much quicker now that, um, you know, companies are born and then disappear much faster than they did 50 years ago.
1: Yeah. And it seems like the only ones that are around are private. Uh,
2: there are some private companies It's that that stick around are there ones that you have in mind
1: um certain ones like i don't remember when they turned over but um like the uh scott is a scott family they different multi-generational families companies lasted for a period of time before they went public or whatever happened
2: yeah i think like mars candy always always did very well but that's um, a good one
1: uh, and dell just went private not that long ago I think, to try to help ride out some of the volatility. Yeah, but
2: that doesn't protect you from the change either because uh, Toys R Us was public and then went private. Uh, Some private equity guys took them private, and now they're no longer.
1: Well, if it's too late.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, everybody, you know, it's like you can... uh, it's like quarterbacking after the fact. It's easy now, but yeah, everybody says Toys R Us. They had they had an opportunity to take advantage of their store base and really make it like experiential. So that in, since you can't if you're buying off of Amazon for the convenience, there's no store sure. to go visit. But Toys right. R Us had this existing store base. They could have made something really cool in those stores, whether it's um you know, like building Legos or having these displays that drove people to go there just to play and hang out. But um, I think it's that hard, though. The management, <laughs> yeah, but the management were resistant to try anything new. And their strategy was to just, uh, they were advertising, I think all their signage would say things like, the best value, get the cheapest, get the oh, best prices. But then you bad, look at the prices, and they weren't really cheap at all. It was still pretty expensive, so it just didn't work. People didn't go. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, having playgroups or something to inspire loyalty or, yeah, they needed to go upscale, I guess, slightly to. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, things. Interesting.
2: It is true, though. Things are changing so quickly, especially with technology um, disrupting not only retail, but, you know, all kinds of businesses. So everything's changing. I mean, you and I as consumers, we're podcasting the way that we consume audio content is changing. I mean, the whole radio industry is uh, being disrupted too. So.
1: Sure. Not as quickly as I would like. And I'm going to go into that later because (laughs) I've interviewed Dave Jackson and James Cridlin. And I love talking to shop about this because I, I, I do see as I see podcasting as a future, but I see problems with it. And I want to pull one more thing out of your financial brain though, because I've got an expert. Financial hurricane alerts. Is it time for another one?
2: Uh, I will get to that. Just one more thing to add to your uh, Ponzi scheme. Because I think that there are great companies um, that one can invest in. And in simply by judging, looking at their earnings. If you can find companies that are growing their earnings very consistently, quarter Apple. after quarter, year after year. I believe that those are not Ponzi schemes. Those are companies that, those are the things that would get my dad, like he gets really excited about that even today. Uh, Companies from different industries that, they have management teams that can grow products and services just every quarter. And they do that for 70 plus years. If you can find those companies and own them for a long time, they're, they're, they're creating shareholder value through that earning stream. And you can make a lot of money just owning those companies for the long term.
1: Unfortunately, what's that like Like Warren Warren Buffett?
2: Buffett. Yeah. Well, Warren Buffett even has uh, greater advantages than, than you and me, because he gets into these opportunities that others cannot. And, uh, but yeah, that is the idea. It's um, if you can find great businesses that you can hold, for your lifetime you can do great and I think that that is not a Ponzi scheme that that's really what investing is all about to be a shareholder in a company that's growing and to own a piece of that and uh, you know be rewarded for being a shareholder because the company's growing in, in their their growing earnings um, consistently I, I
1: guess my criticism is a Ponzi scheme mentality. I feel like we have investors who are chasing um, the quick dollar and what happens is the first ones in are the ones who make all the money and the ones later are the ones who lose it all.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's
1: full on Ponzi.
2: That's been the case, I think, throughout history. I mean, there have been tulip bulb bubbles. Bitcoin. We had the internet <laughs> bubble. Um, you know, people are looking at crypto today. Mm-hmm. very similarly right there was like this herd mentality people are jumping on and you can make money really quickly uh that's that's kind of human nature we always want the quick win don't have to put in a lot of work and it, if you if you bring it back to your diet and food it's like we all want to be able to eat like three pieces of chocolate cake and then have like ripped abs but it just that's it true. doesn't really work in that way so I think investing too. I mean, same thing. It's it's a long game. You have to, you do, you should pick your points and try to invest in quality. And if you can do that, you can save yourself a lot of heartache and trouble. Um, but you know, the, the the fact is that there are market cycles. And getting back to your question about financial hurricanes, we think not yet. I'm, at our firm, because of my dad's macro work we're always trying to assess assess what is the, what is the risk in the overall market? Because even though we like to stick with quality, if you're buying Mm -hmm. quality companies at the top of the market, you're still (laughs) going to get hurt um, in the near term. So we think that it's very important to pay attention. Um, You know, the term market timing gets a bad name. Uh, You know, Conventional thinking says that you should just buy and hold and just never look at it again. But um, I think that the reality is that whether it is for your mental health or for retirees who are no longer collecting a paycheck, and also for nonprofit organizations who, you know, if they have an endowment, they want to protect that because they want to use it for some good cause to have it um get reduced by 30% because of a market correction, that's painful. And because of that, um, my dad has always spent a lot of time doing research. And we have a unique uh, history of trying to protect our clients' assets. My father first did it in 1987. He started raising Mm. cash in August of 1987. Um, I remember that, We were actually on a family vacation to Switzerland and it was summer. We were not skiing, but we were enjoying the scenery and doing some sightseeing. And my father was calling back uh, to his office in New York city and selling a lot of stock for the bank's pension fund and other outside clients that he was managing money for. Uh, So come October and the Dow Jones profit sharing plan was among one of his clients so because come october black monday and uh, they were calling clients were calling him to see what happened to their accounts and he said you're near a hundred percent in cash which is oh wow kind of insane i mean from a business strategy standpoint i mean that that can be risky right but my father always felt like um he, he treats the client's accounts like uh, as if it's his own and he wants to protect it. He doesn't want to have to report back to the client that your account got cut in half. So he was able to tell um, Alan Abelson, who was at the Dow Jones, that you, your account is fine. And uh, the response was that many of the publications owned by the Dow Jones um, covered my dad Barons called my father their favorite portfolio manager, and uh, my dad was on the cover of CFO magazine. So oh, wow. he, uh, yeah, he got a lot of um, publicity at that time. And we've done similarly, just on a much quieter um, basis in 2000, back when the internet internet bubble popped, and then also 2008, uh, we took defensive positioning in our clients accounts and it's interesting because each time it's for a different reason it's not the same cause each time
1: but it's bubbles of one kind or another right
2: it is i mean there's like overvaluation so that the market is susceptible to a correction but in our view usually over overvaluation is not reason enough like you need that to sort of set up the potential for a market correction. But usually that's not the cause. That's not the the stimulus. Usually it's a a recession or you have uh, interest rates that are rising sharply, which affects the valuation.
1: So in today's climate, because obviously people are very concerned about the current political climate, Whatever side anybody is on, are they? It's very toxic right now. Um, you don't see that as being more than noise. That the um, basic fundamentals financially were not in too bad of shape.
2: Well, certainly it's a risk. Um, you know the 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 political divisiveness is a risk, um, and it makes it difficult for me to open up Facebook.
0: <laughs> you know, whatever
2: <laughs> I read it. It it, it is uh, very challenging because you don't, as you said, there's a lot of noise and perhaps more than any time in history, it seems like there's so much noise and technology because of technology, right? Because of the internet, because of the newspapers, because of radio, because of TV, there's this 24 hour news cycle. There's more news being reported constantly. And unfortunately, I think the news cycle is so quick that often people are trying to break a story. There's not a lot of research behind it. It's more about speed. Everyone wants to be the first to report uh, rather than report for accuracy. So I think that the challenge for us when we're managing clients' money is that we do need to figure out what is noise and what is not. And the mm-hmm. easiest way for us to do that is to look at data first. Like if we look at, is the U.S. economy growing? You know, we can look at, we can look at various uh, data points and different variables that the government is reporting. And we can rely on that before we look at like a headline in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. Because, like, if there's really something negative happening, it should get picked up in the numbers eventually. And that's either, like, in economic data or you see that in corporate earnings because the corporations are not existing in a vacuum. If there's something bad happening in the U.S. economy or in the global economy, you start getting a reading from the company's corporate earnings results. So we try looking at the data first, but we do keep an eye on the headlines just to see like, do they, are they working together or not?
1: One last question and then we can move on to fun stuff. What about um, tariffs and trade wars that are potentially going on right now? That would seem to have a possible, a possibility of affecting the markets.
2: Yeah. We've been watching that really closely because, um, any disruption to global trade is not good. And the U S and China being such large trade partners globally, I think neither side wins in a trade war. In fact, it is potentially so bad that all the smaller economies suffer as well, because if you have two, two of the largest economies in the world fighting and not working together, That doesn't just affect the US and China, it affects everybody. Um, So that's that's not good. On the other hand, I saw a study by Fidelity Investments, and they were showing that the China tariffs, although the number does keep increasing, but relative to the tax reform, government spending, like that is all very, very, uh, that's all stimulus like the Mm -hmm. fiscal stimulus that's taking place is still much larger than the tariffs currently. So Mm -hmm. just to provide some perspective, like that stimulus should still be outweighing the negative impact of tariffs. But what's unknown is if trade war and tariffs escalate, um, you know, that, that is potentially bad. But in the meantime, we think that it's a lot more noise than reality. In the end, we don't know how it's going to play out. There's going to be a lot of, um, uh, you know, positioning from both sides politically, uh, a lot of posturing to see who's going to give in. Um, so it, it's hard to read. But as of right now, we feel like corporate profits are fine. The U.S. The US economy is growing. Uh, so we're OK for now. Uh, we are not on okay. alert at this moment, but certainly we'll be watching things pretty closely next year because um, U.S. corporations got to benefit from the tax reform. Their earnings got boosted because of tax cuts, and that's mm. just a one-time thing. So that, that'll face uh, tougher comparisons next year. And so we'll be watching that to see how does the market react. But for now, things are okay, right? It's October, we figure between now and year-end, things should be all right. But that said, uh, volatility is on the increase. So people are feeling a little a little
1: jumpy. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So <laughs> if anybody we're... is still listening. <laughs> <laughs> this is didn't... actually quite fascinating. No, I, I think that these are legitimate concerns that pretty much everyone has out there and if they don't then they're looking to lose everything they don't pay attention at all
2: yeah i think one Um, has to be careful um you know we we call it a financial hurricane because we believe it is like the weather you know you can't guarantee that your forecast is going to be correct or accurate but if you live in puerto rico and there is a hurricane warning it's like, should you take heed of the warning and, you know, take precaution or should you just ignore it completely? And we right. feel like it's worth at least trying to do our homework, even if we are not 100% correct. But if you can protect yourself, even from part of a major market correction, we think that it's worth trying. Um, because, you know, y- y- you sleep better at night. And, uh, you know, financial health, I think is, it is connected to your, um, mental health, physical health, spiritual health, you know, you need like four pillars of, of health. And if you're, if you take a big hit financially, it can, it can make you physically ill. So to take some precautions and try to protect things on the financial side, it's all about balance, as we said earlier.
1: Now, to change gears and speaking of sleeping at night, I understand you played punk in college, so your neighbors weren 't sleeping very much.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, that is true yeah i had um I had roommates on my floor my freshman year in college. I had played guitar for about i think two months when I arrived at, at college, and uh, one of my buddies he 's a big punk, hardcore ska music fan okay and rounded us up big audio
1: dynamite a
2: few guys in the hall we started a band and okay. uh yeah we put pl- we played around Hartford and around Connecticut.
1: Was this influence? I, I mentioned Big Audio Dynamite or the Clash or that stuff. When I hear ska and I hear punk it kind yeah,
2: of you know, and... our, I don't know how authentic our ska was, but yeah in those days it was like the Boston's. they're still around. Um, yeah, my, my buddy, he was a big, um, Washington DC, like punk hardcore scene guy. So that was discord, Ooh. the record label, Fugazi, Henry Rollins, Henry Rollins. Yep.
1: Those wow, are kind of the influences. Buddy? Okay. And your buddy ran with that crowd?
2: He, yeah, he went to a lot of shows and had a fanzine that he wrote while we were in college.
1: Oh, man, those are the days.
2: Which, uh, yeah, it's a different time, right? I mean, this is like before internet. So he, he would publish Correct. his own fanzine and kind of Shot melding all here. his interest, which was hardcore punk music and also sports because he loved basketball. So he'd kind of just oh, put them wow. all together. He's like a straight edge, <laughs> straight edge punk guy. So no alcohol, no, no drinking, oh, no okay. smoking. And, uh, yeah, he just loved the, he loved the message of punk and, but yeah, he knew loves one of sports those.
1: too. I knew one of those. I I actually found him to be the most punk rock guy I ever knew because he would walk around with all the other punks wearing a polo <laughs> and it's, you know, polo and, um, top
2: That's really punk, and, I guess.
1: <laughs> and well, it is, because if you think about it, um, the Mohawks and everything else are the uniform, right? <laughs> Yeah, so he's like he he dresses the way he wanted. He just loved the music and was really into it. I'm like, you know what? That's actually punk rock. He went the other way. You're not... Yeah. 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 Being original um amongst the misfits. I think that's pretty cool. Sounds like your buddy too. Yeah,
2: we had a good time. We had a good time. We had the, like a our first thing was this battle of the bands. And well that's cool. Our goal, we said, our goal is not to be the winners.
1: Our goal is to be the, <laughs> the wieners.
2: And I think we, I think we succeeded.
1: Oh, uh, there you go. It's always good to have an achievable goal. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the reason this is so funny is when I met Andy, he was carrying his ukulele, which I'm probably saying wrong, but he was carrying that around with him, which is a little bit of a diversion from the punk rock scene.
2: Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, I tell people that I got old and I retired my electric guitar. And back in college, our drummer used to play so loudly that we all had to get like bigger and bigger amps just to like keep up with his, the volume of his drumming.
1: But (laughs) the Marshall (laughs) stack,
2: yeah, it was like the equivalent of having a Marshall stack. And then you get old, like you can't, your neighbors really do get mad if you're blasting (laughs) your electric guitar. So I traded in my electric for an acoustic, and my wife, who was born and raised in Hawaii, I would go back to Hawaii to visit her family uh, pretty regularly, like once a year, occasionally twice a year before we had kids, and just fell in love with the music and the culture. And I used to, I used to go seek out these Hawaiian slack key guitar masters, and you know try to learn something from them. So that was like
1: really fascinating. Honey, I think you said at one time.
2: Raymond Kane, yeah, Raymond Kane was um was a significant one for me because that was the he was one of three musicians from Hawaii that I saw for the first time a live Hawaiian music concert that was in Boston, and uh, Uncle Raymond Kane just played this old style, very peaceful and melodic music, singing in Hawaiian. When I saw him, he had like emphysema because he was a welder, um, for many, many years and had like breathing problems. So he, he had, uh, he had this like oxygen mask and he wasn't supposed to smoke, but occasionally he would sneak a cigarette. (laughs) His, his wife would say that she'd look out the window and see this little glow out in the (laughs) evening and she'd go, Raymond, get in here. But, um. Yeah, for me to go to Raymond Kane's house, that's like the equivalent of you're like a if you're a big blues guy and of if if you're a big blues fan and you got to go to Stevie Ray Vaughan's house or something. But sure, for a sure. client slack key, yeah, to go to Raymond Kane's house is really really cool.
1: Now, can you describe what Slacky is?
2: Slacky guitar, uh slack key originated in the mid to late 1800s and the legend goes like this that there was a gift of cows to Hawaii. I think it was George Vancouver gifted the king. I don't know how many cows. And the king, because it was a gift, issued this tapu or taboo. It's like a law saying that the people could not interfere with the cows. And <clears throat> the cows ate grass. At the time, the Hawaiians, their houses were also made of grass. So pretty soon you had a housing problem. At least that's the joke. And so what ended up happening is that you had these cattle and cows. They're just walking around all over the place. That's not going to work. So the Hawaiians actually sent for these cowboys from California. They they were Mexican cowboys from California to come to Hawaii and teach the locals how to herd cattle. And Hmm. um, they brought with them their six string guitars and hung out with the Hawaiians taught them how to herd cattle after a long day of herding cattle they would play music and hang out at night so the legend is that when the Mexican cowboys went back home to California they left their guitars behind as gifts and that Mm. the the Hawaiians didn't know how to tune their guitar so they came up with their own tunings to suit their voices and their own local music so hawaiian slack key can be played on any any guitar but it's just uh, it's a lot of open tunings like an open g tuning so you just strum all six strings and it's an it's a g chord or there are Hmm. c tunings and then as these tunings develop they would be passed down family lineage like certain families certain islands certain geographical areas were known for certain tunings And uh, Hmm. it would only be passed down like through a family.
1: That's kind of wild. So it's kind of detuned guitars. Yeah, it's just
2: detuned. That's, that's where slack comes from because it's slacking the keys. And uh, that's why it's called slack key. It's called key hoalu in Hawaiian, which means loosen the, loosen the keys.
1: That's kind of cool because that um, ties in with some blues, which has some drop detuning and things like that. So I, I like how you get different cultures and completely different parts of the world. And you sort of do the same thing.
2: Totally. Totally. I mean, the Hawaiians are very proud of their Hawaiian slacky tunings, but you're correct. It's very common in a lot of folk traditions. Uh, yeah, you lower your E string down to a D and, uh, yeah, you see that in blues. You see that, you see that in a lot of different, uh, styles of music.
1: Is there a similarity to slide as well? Or am I reaching?
2: no, you are not reaching at all. This is another, this is up for debate, but Joseph K. in Hawaii, I believe, um, came up with the Hawaiian steel, the slide, which is using the metal slide on uh-huh. the guitar, sort of lying down S-
1: sideways. Yeah. yeah. Sideways.
2: Like yeah. Joseph K. There, There's a woman in New York that I know. She's a descendant of this guy. And, um, he is credited in Hawaii with like creating Hawaiian steel guitar, but no one knows for sure because, um, you know, it's very well known and well used in country music also. Um, so that's up for debate, but, but the Hawaiians say that Joseph came up with, uh, I don't know. He found some like railroad tie or something and pin and started putting it on his guitar and developed, um, because Hawaiian steel is, is really big in Hawaii. There are also different tunings. And, um, you know, there are a lot of guys that have very distinct styles uh, in Hawaiian music.
1: Well, that's cool. And it kind of makes sense that there's parallel thinking.
2: Yeah, totally. Totally. So, yeah, that's a very um, characteristic, um, you know, thing in Hawaiian music. Not always, but a certain, certain genre of, of Hawaiian music. Yes, yeah, steel is very important.
1: Now, one thing cool or a couple things cool is your playing Hawaiian music has given you a couple opportunities which are sort of rare to everybody else.
2: The Hawaiian music has given me like countless crazy opportunities that it, I always say that it's taken me to places that I never thought I'd go. Um it's Taken me to meet people that I never would have met otherwise. And it's funny because I never wanted to play anywhere outside of my living room. I had the worst stage fright. I mean, it was one thing to play in college, you just crank up your amp and you're playing bar chords. This sure. Hawaiian style is different because it's much more delicate. It's a finger style, finger picking. Um, if your hands are shaking because you're nervous, which used to happen to me a lot. You can't pick like cleanly, like you just can't play well. And it took a long time for me to get over that stage fright in fear. So I love it because it, it's just about, it really goes to, um, you know, conquering one's fear by doing it. The more you do it, the more you get used to something, you gain confidence It's no longer a big deal. I mean, maybe sometimes I still get a little nervous, but uh, certainly I've done it enough. And I've stood on some pretty big stages, like in front of 500 people. Uh, Just me and my acoustic guitar and was able to play a set and sing. And I survived. I have one teacher, Ozzy Kotani. He used to tell
1: me, nobody die. You you won't die. So just go do it. Just do it. Did you know that? the number one fear is public speaking.
2: I hear that more so than death itself.
1: Yes. So
2: So, yeah, I'm living proof that if you just force yourself to do it, um, I didn't die. There were many times where I felt like I was going to die. There were times when I physically gave myself a stomach ache just because I think I was so nervous. Um, yeah, I I, like the acid in my stomach must've been like so strong. That I just felt like a knot in my stomach. My hands were shaking, but you don't care. You just <laughs> you just go do it, and uh, taking me on crazy adventures. I've I've been able to, uh, you know, Raymond Kane. He 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 is among the masters who would perform as part of this Hawaiian slack key festival throughout the islands of Hawaii. Um, I think the festival's been going on for close to thirty years, if not th- over thirty years. And uh, a guy named Milton Lau, he he continues to do the uh, festival. His son is taking over as time goes on. But these festivals were great because they would go on like from 12 o'clock noon until six at night and you'd get all the artists out there on stage. Each person only gets 15 minutes. But as a spectator, you get to see all these different players and see their different styles and appreciate you just get to see a lot and um it was two or three years ago when milton brought the slacky festival to the east coast i got to join some of the guys from hawaii for three shows in new jersey virginia and new york city and um, that blew my mind i mean i was like i have no business being on the stage with these guys from hawaii who are professionals i'm like i'm just here i'm a financial advisor i'm not really sure what (laughs) i'm doing here
1: (laughs) well on that note um i believe you i'm i'm talking with andy to get a song of his to put on the end of this show because i think everybody will want to hear it and i think that will be an awesome place to wrap it up now where can people find you andy People can find
2: me at inspiredmoney.fm or you can find me on Twitter at RunnymedeCap. That's R-U-N-N-Y-M-E-D-E-C-A-P. But go to inspiredmoney.fm. That's much easier to spell (laughs) and figure out where to go.
1: Definitely. And everybody, please check out his show. It is very cool. And as you can hear, it's not just finances. I mean, we're talking about a well-rounded individual here.
2: Yeah, well, we have some crazy days, but um, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, you didn't even get into my um, my three Not kids, <laughs> my wife and three kids. It's it's pretty crazy. There's never a boring moment. It's always um, a lot of fun.
1: Well, hey, thanks so much for coming on, man.
2: Thanks for having me on, Eric. It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm.